Letter 95 of Pamela, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neela, Iowa City, Iowa. Pamela, Volume 2 by Samuel Richardson. Letter 95. But now, my dear Mr. B., if you will indulge me in a letter or two more, preparative to my little book, I will take the liberty to touch upon one or two other places wherein I differ from this learned gentleman. But first, permit me to observe that if parents are, above all things, to avoid giving bad examples to their children, they will be no less careful to shun the practice of such fond fathers and mothers as are wont to indulge their children in bad habits and give them their head at a time when like wax their tender minds may be moulded into what shape they please. This is a point that, if it please God, I will carefully attend to, because it is the foundation on which the superstructure of the whole future man is to be erected. For, according as he is indulged or checked in his childish follies, a ground is laid for his future happiness or misery. And, if once they are suffered to become habitual to him, it cannot but be expected that they will grow up with him, and that they will hardly ever be eradicated. Try it, says Mr. Locke, speaking to this very point, in a dog or a horse or any other creature, and see whether the ill and resty tricks they have learned when young are easily to be mended when they are knit, and yet none of these creatures are half so willful and proud or half so desirous to be masters of themselves as men. And this brings me, dear sir, to the head of punishments in which, as well as in the article of rewards, which I have touched upon. I have a little objection to what Mr. Locke advances, but permit me, however, to premise that I am exceedingly pleased with the method laid down by this excellent writer, rather to shame the child out of his fault than beat him which latter serves generally for nothing but to harden his mind. Obstinacy, and telling a lie and committing a willful fault, and then persisting in it, are, I agree with this gentleman, the only causes for which the child should be punished with stripes. And I admire the reasons he gives against a too rigorous and severe treatment of children. But I will give Mr. Locke's words, to which I have some objection. It may be doubted, says he, Concerning whipping, when, as the last remedy, it comes to be necessary, at what time, and by whom, it should be done, whether presently, upon the committing the fault, whilst it is yet fresh and hot, I think it should not be done presently, adds he, lest passion mingle with it, and so, though it exceed the just proportion, yet it lose of its due weight, for even children discern, whenever we do things in a passion, I must beg leave, dear sir, to differ from Mr. Locke in this point, for I think it ought rather to be a rule with parents, who shall chastise their children, to conquer what would be extreme in their own passion on this occasion, for those who cannot do it are very unfit to be the punishers of the wayward passions of their children, than to defer the punishment, especially if the child knows its fault has reached its parents' ear. It is otherwise, methinks, giving the child, if of an obstinate disposition, so much more time to harden its mind and bid defiance to its punishment. 
Just now, dear sir, your Billy is brought into my presence, all smiling, crowing to come to me, and full of heart-cheering promises. And the subject I am upon goes to my heart. Surely I can never beat your Billy. Dear little life of my life, how can I think thou canst ever deserve it, or that I can ever inflict it? No, my baby, that shall be thy papa's task, if ever thou art so heinously naughty, and whatever he does must be right. Pardon my foolish fondness, dear sir, I will proceed. If, then, the fault be so atrocious as to deserve whipping, and the parent be resolved on this exemplary punishment, the child ought not, as I imagine, to come into one's presence without meeting with it, or else a fondness too natural to be resisted will probably get the upper hand of one's resentment. And how shall one be able to whip the dear creature one had ceased to be angry with? Then, after he has once seen one without meeting his punishment, will he not be inclined to hope for connivance at his fault, unless it should be repeated? And may he not be apt, for children's resentments are strong, to impute to cruelty a correction when he thought the fault had been forgotten, that should always appear to be inflicted with reluctance and through motives of love, if from anger at his fault one should go above the due proportion. I am sure I might be trusted for this. Let it take its course. How barbarously methinks I speak. He ought to feel the lash first because he deserves it. Poor little soul. Next, because it is proposed to be exemplary. And lastly, because it is not intended to be often used. And the very passion or displeasure one expresses, if it be not enormous, will shew one is in earnest and create in him a necessary awe and fear to offend again. The end of the correction is to shew him the difference between right and wrong. And as it is proper to take him at his first offer of a full submission and repentance, and not before, and instantly dispassionate oneself and shew him the difference by acts of pardon and kindness, which will let him see that one punishes him out of necessity rather than choice, so one would not be afraid to make him smart so sufficiently that he should not soon forget the severity of the discipline, nor the disgrace of it. There's a cruel mamma for you, Mr. B. What my practice may be, I cannot tell, but this theory, I presume to think, is right. As to the act itself, I much approve Mr. Locke's advice, to do it by pauses, mingling stripes and expostulations together, to shame and terrify the more, and the rather, as the parent, by this slow manner of inflicting the punishment, will less need to be afraid of giving too violent a correction. For those pauses will afford him, as well as the child, opportunities for consideration and reflection. But as to the person by whom the discipline should be performed, I humbly conceive that this excellent author is here also to be objected to. If you have a discreet servant, says he, capable of it, and has the place of governing your child, for if you have a tutor there is no doubt, I think it is best the smart should come immediately from another's hand, though by the parent's order. Who should see it done, whereby the parent's authority will be preserved, and the child's aversion for the pain it suffers, rather be turned on the person that immediately inflicts it? 
for I would have a father seldom strike a child, but upon very urgent necessity, and as the last remedy. Tis in such an urgent case that we are supposing that it should be done at all. If there be not a reason strong enough for the father's whipping the child himself, there cannot be one for his ordering another to do it, and standing by to see it done. But I humbly think that if there be a necessity, no one can be so fit as the father himself to do it. The child cannot dispute his authority to punish, from whom he receives and expects all good things of his life. He cannot question his love to him, and after the smart is over, and his obedience secured, must believe that so tender, so indulgent a father could have no other end in whipping him but his good. Against him, he knows he has no remedy, but must passively submit. And when he's convinced he must, he will in time conclude that he ought. But to have this severe office performed by a servant, though at the father's command, and that professedly, that the aversion of the child for the pain it suffers should be turned on the person who immediately inflicts it is, I humbly think, the reverse of what ought to be done. And more so, if this servant has any direction of the child's education, and still much more so, if it be his tutor, though Mr. Locke says there is no doubt, if there be a tutor, that it should be done by him. For, dear sir, is there no doubt that the tutor should lay himself open to the aversion of the child, whose manners he is to form? Is not the best method a tutor can take, in order to enforce the lessons he would inculcate, to try to attract the love and attention of his pupil by the most winning ways he can possibly think of? And yet is he, this very tutor, out of all doubt to be the instrument of doing an harsh and disgraceful thing, and that in the last resort, when all other methods are found ineffectual, and that too because he ought to incur the child's resentment and aversion rather than the father? Oh no, surely, sir, it is not reasonable it should be so. Quite contrary, in my humble notion, there can be no doubt but that it should be otherwise. It should, methinks, be enough for a tutor, in case of a fault in the child, to threaten to complain to his father, but yet not to make such a complaint without the child obstinately persists in his error, which, too, should be of a nature to merit such an appeal, and this might highly contribute to preserve the parent's authority, who, on this occasion, should never fail of extorting a promise of amendment, or of instantly punishing him with his own hands, and to soften the distaste he might conceive in resentment of too rigid complainings, it might not be amiss that his interposition in the child's favor, were the fault not too flagrant, should be permitted to save him once or twice from the impending discipline. Tis certain that the passions, if I may so call them, of affection and aversion, are very early discoverable in children, insomuch that they will, even before they can speak, afford us marks for the detection of an hypocritical appearance of love to it before the parents' faces. For the fondness or averseness of the child to some servants will at any time let one know whether their love to the baby is uniform and the same when one is absent as present. In one case the child will reject with sullenness all the little sycophancies made to it in one's sight, while on the other its fondness of the person, who generally obliges it, 
is an infallible rule to judge of such an one's sincerity behind one's back. This little observation shews the strength of a child's resentments and its sagacity at the earliest age in discovering who obliges and who disobliges it. And hence, one may infer how improper a person he is, whom we would have a child to love and respect, or by whose precepts we would have it directed, to be the punisher of its faults, or to do any harsh or disagreeable office to it. For my own part, I beg to declare that if the parent were not to inflict the punishment himself, I think it much better it should be given him in the parent's presence, by the servant of the lowest consideration in the family, and whose manners and example one would be the least willing of any other he should follow, just as the common executioner, who is the lowest and most flagitious officer of the commonwealth, and who frequently deserves, as much as the criminal, the punishments he has chosen to inflict, is pitched upon to perform, as a mark of greater ignominy, sentences, intended as examples to deter others from the commission of heinous crimes. The Almighty took this method when he was disposed to correct severely his chosen people, for in that case he generally did it by the hands of the most profligate nations around them, as we read in many places of the Old Testament. But the following rule I admire in Mr. Locke. When, says he, for any misdemeanor, the father or mother looks sour on the child, every one else should put on the same coldness to him, and nobody give him countenance till forgiveness is asked, and a reformation of his fault has set him right again and restored him to his former credit. If this were constantly observed, adds he, I guess there would be little need of blows or chiding. Their own ease or satisfaction would quickly teach children to court commendation and avoid doing that which they found everybody condemned, and they were sure to suffer for, without being chid or beaten. This would teach them modesty and shame, and they would quickly come to have a natural abhorrence for that which they found made them slighted and neglected by everybody. This affords me a pretty hint, for if ever your charming Billy shall be naughty, I will proclaim throughout your worthy family that the little dear is in disgrace. And one shall shun him, another decline answering him, a third say, No, master, I cannot obey you till your mamma is pleased with you. A fourth, who shall mind what little masters bid them do, when they won't mind what their mamma say to them? And when the dear little soul finds this, he will come in my way, and I see, pardon me, my dear Mr. B., he has some of his papa's spirit already. Indeed he has, and I will direct myself with double kindness to your beloved Davers and to my Miss Goodwin, and not notice the dear creature if I can help it, till I can see his papa, forgive my boldness, banished from his little sullen brow, and all his mamma rise to his eyes, and when his musical tongue shall be unlocked to his own fault and promise amendment, oh, then, how shall I clasp him to my bosom, and tears of joy, I know, will meet his tears of penitence. How these flights, dear sir, please a body, what delights have those mammas, which some fashionable dear ladies are quite unacquainted with, who can make their babies and their first educations their entertainment and diversion? to watch the dawnings of reason in them, 
to direct their little passions as they shew themselves to this or that particular point of benefit or use, and to prepare the sweet virgin soil of their minds to receive the seeds of virtue and goodness so early, that as they grow up one need only now a little pruning and now a little water to make them the ornaments and delights of the garden of this life. And then their pretty ways, their fond and grateful endearments, some new beauty every day rising to observation. Oh, my dearest Mr. B., whose enjoyments and pleasures are so great as those of such mothers as can bend their minds two or three hours every day to the duties of the nursery. I have a few other things to observe upon Mr. Locke's treatise, which, when I have done, I shall read, admire, and improve by the rest as my years and experience advance, of which, in my proposed little book, I shall give you better proofs than I am able to do at present, raw, crude, and indigested, as the notions of so young a mamma must needs be. But these shall be the subjects of another letter, for now I am come to the pride and the pleasure I always have when I subscribe myself, dearest sir, your ever-dutiful and grateful P.B. End of letter 95